And I see the children know it is time to go to their classes, which are so wonderfully prepared. What a tremendous children's ministry uh, program we have. And I was, I was at a volunteer event, and I just love the vision that uh, Megan and Lauren, our staff cast for that, that it's not a zookeeping ministry where you're just trying to keep everybody calm. And it is a serious Bible teaching ministry. I mean, one of the strengths of CLC is every really gathering we have that is equipping is taking the Word of God, seeking to get it into our hearts, and then mobilize us outward. And I just want to commend to you that all the opportunities, there are so many opportunities to get more of God's Word into your heart and to do it uh, not seated in kind of like rows of chairs where you don't get to know people, but to, to do it in circles where you can develop and deepen the greatest friendships. So everything from uh, women's and men's and uh, all of the different opportunities, uh, just encourage you to find that place and take that next step there. Um, let's uh, participate in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and then join our hearts in prayer. The prayer that all the apostles prayed, <laughs> the prayer that is prayed in virtually every denomination around the world, the prayer that's being prayed around the globe by literally billions of people. Uh, let's pray the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll lead us in a season of prayer. Let's bow together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us the words to approach you with. Words, Lord, that are timeless, true, and there is virtually no condition or need we have that doesn't fit under give us our daily bread or deliver us uh, from temptation uh, or forgive us. Uh, or hallowed be your name. Lord, you alone are the king of kings. Nations will come and go, including the nation we love and live in now, but your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your kingdom encompasses all nations, races, tribes, and peoples. Your kingdom is a global kingdom because you are a global God. And every earthly nation will have its final chapter unless you come in the midst of it. And we thank you today for the privilege of being part of your people, the church. We're reminded, Lord, as much as we love our country, before there was America, there was a church. Our nation is but an experiment, but the church is a certainty. And we are filled with awe to be part of your church through sheer grace. Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy to occupy the throne and reign over the nations. And we declare to you this morning our love for you. There are many manifestations of power in our world, but you gain sway over the hearts of women, children, and men by the forces of love. And you are worthy of our love. And there is none else. There is no one else. There is no other system. There is no other religious system that draws out our allegiance like you, Lord. We love you because you were kind, because you were good, because you were merciful. We love you because you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We love you because you are reliable. You are the same yesterday, today, forever. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because you took on yourself the unthinkable chasm between us and you because of our sin. 
And you met that chasm in love and you offered to us redemption, reconciliation, and life and hope. And yet, oh God, we, we come to you, we confess we've not always loved you as we ought. Too often, even the past week, we have loved ourselves more. We've chosen to do what pleases us rather than what pleases you. We've pursued our heart's desires instead of yours. And so we come and we confess our sin and our sinfulness, the sins that we have committed and even our very tendency towards sin, and we ask that you would forgive us every transgression and each and every failure of life and lip and heart motive. And we thank you, Lord, that you do forgive. We thank you that you have forgiven, and we thank you that you have promised that to be faithful and just and to forgive us all of the sins that we confess before you. We thank you that you are ever ready to restore the relationship that we ruined and that you are ready to bind up all that we've broken. And so it makes us love you all the more. And gracious Father, you've invited us to bring our prayers before you. And we would pray this morning for all of the ways that we can serve you to be strengthened. We would pray for all of the partners we partner with to have their voices Amplified, We would pray that they would have their ministries resourced. We would pray that you would furnish the work of the harvest with laborers. We thank you this morning for El Centro, a ministry for at-risk children, many who face literally an early death because of forces they did not develop and or contribute to, uh, but they were born in the midst of. And we thank you that you have raised up this outpost of mercy, safety, protection. We ask this morning that as we celebrate them with snow cones and awareness, Lord, that you would also snow down upon them the resources as well as divine protection and grace as they occupy that space. We pray for uh, the work of churches in supporting these kind of works that you would strengthen us in that resolve. And Lord, that you would just show us that the life that you've given us takes on luster and power and delight and joy when we actually put it into practice and serve you and take our stand with the vulnerable. Oh God, we thank you on the streets of Wilmington that Urban Promise is changing the trajectory of lives. May you furnish them and strengthen them with the staff, the volunteers, the interns, the resources to do your work and to do it mightily, especially the work of your spirit, drawing hearts to the good news of Christ and to the privilege that the good news includes that they get to live a different story. We pray that for them. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with the ministry of the Lighthouse, also here locally, offering a safe space, a different space, a place of credibility and kindness and intervention. That is so like you, Lord, and we would pray this morning that the teaching of your word would help us to be healthier and robust and strong and protected so that we can manifest your goodness in every way. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would cause your kingdom to grow in our hearts and our resolve, Lord, to do something about the brokenness we see in ourselves or others or in our world, to grow, to be an irrepressible force. 
And so we thank you. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and you are worthy, O Lord, and you will triumph. And thank you that you call us to be part of a cause that cannot fail and that is increasing and abounding even amidst all of the opposition, all of the weakness, all of the things that could deter us. But Lord, you will be undeterred. Um, You are glorious. And we ask that you would impart your grace to us as we open up your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. He's so good. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at a passage of scripture. And um, this series is a short series on church culture. And we're looking at it. I feel a little bit like, if you know the author of Jude, he says, I wanted to talk about this, but I was constrained by the Spirit to talk about this. And we're talking about culture as a church because we believe God's Spirit leads us to address and learn uh, and be humbled and healed wherever our past calls us to that. Uh, I love that that is a great truth of the gospel. And uh, as I came aboard and was asking God to direct us by the Spirit, I've been so heartened and encouraged by our leaders, our elders, our staff, in the study of a book that we're looking a bit in the rearview mirror and saying, Lord, how can we learn from areas we've missed it in the past. And this is a book called, a church called Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. And you'll note that Tov occurs in my two favorite chapters of the Bible, my two of my four favorite chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. I love those two chapters. And then I love Revelation 21, 22. You know why I love those four chapters? Some of you do. Because there's no sin in those chapters. <laughs> Every other chapter of the Bible, there's sin. Every other chapter, there's dysfunction. Um, But those are the chapters that show God began it in a glorious pattern. And if you were in Jesus Christ, you were on the trajectory from Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3, where everything fell apart, uh, to a Revelation 21, 22 future. But we don't get there by covering up where we failed. And so this is a great book. We're reading it, we're studying it, we're seeking to get it in the bloodstream, and it's called Forming a Goodness Culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. So important. We're going to be taking this apart the next couple weeks. There's going to be Q&As after these messages, and our state of the church is going to pick up this theme. Another book that's been really helpful to me is called When Narcissism Comes to Church. But it's by Chuck DeGroat. And you you know what? In reading this book, uh, you know when narcissism comes to church? It's when I enter the building, even if I'm the only one here. <laughs> uh, it's, there is a resistant narcissist in all of our hearts, and we need the gospel, and we need each other to resist it. And it is tremendous, and it really is a warning to pastors, because it says, it takes a bit of narcissism to get up here and say, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> uh, and so it is, a, it is a place of humbling, a place of calling to that. And then next week, especially, we're going to take up power dynamics. Not just how power is bad. The world often says power is bad. It's always, but we're going to take a, it's called Redeeming Power. This is the magisterial book by Diane Langberg. And it says, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Tremendous. And that's why we're looking at Galatians 2, because it was a moment, a messy, messy moment. You might say that if, you know, all the other letters that Paul wrote begin with some kind of affirmation, Um, You know, even Corinth, which had like, they were taking each other to court. Um, They were 
entering the Lord's Supper drunken and like the people who had the money to shop at Ruth's Chris were bringing in their Ruth's Chris meals and the people who had to go, you know, grab one of those hot dogs that had been on the rotisserie all day long at 7-Eleven. Um, you know, they were like the people with the Ruth's Chris, you know, were, were snarfing down the Ruth's Chris before the 7-Elevens could get there and Paul, like it was just horrible. And God had to actually kill some of them. <laughs> you read it in 1 Corinthians 11. They were denying the resurrection they were um, sexually impure. And you would think that Paul would begin a letter to Corinth and like with, with a, a howler, you know, the Harry Potter howlers where they get the letter and it's screaming. But Paul begins this letter and says, I am so convinced that you are being enriched. He says, I thank God for you. <laughs> and he says, and you are being enriched in the knowledge of Jesus in every way. <laughs> and then he dealt with all of those issues. But in Galatia, Galatians is the only one that is like a severe intervention. And there is no, there is nothing there because he says what, what had infected the, this church was apt to destroy it because it was going to lead them away from credibly carrying the grace of the gospel with them. So, and so um, this is probably the most dramatic of all uh, the passages in this. And let's, let me just read the scriptures uh, I'd love to just read you the scriptures because I know that at least my words from verse 11 through 21 of Galatians 2 are perfect. <laughs> it's the most important thing a pastor ever says is when they just read the Bible to you. <laughs> so let's follow along, and we're going to look especially at Paul's boldness to overcome a culture of fear, blow the whistle, and bring realignment with the gospel here. So here is we read the word of God. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I just bow again. God, as we look at this text, we pray you would inform us as we seek to do what Christ, I believe, would direct us to do, to both move forward as a church, but also look in the rearview mirror to be humbled and healed and full of the hope that you would bring to us as we do that. 
Give me the words and give us the grace, O Lord, uh, to move in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What Paul does in verse 14 is he does a public unveiling of a serious uh, defection from the gospel. Uh, we've talked about this in leadership and, and staff of the kind of crisis that is called an HOA. You know what an HOA is? It's when you have a hospital, oh, H-A-O. No, H-A-I, H-A-I. Hospital-acquired infection. Uh, when an infection is, being, is, a, is acquired in the hospital, um, you have a crisis of immense proportions, right? Because who's supposed to go to the hospital? People who are sick, kind of an analogy with the church, right? We only, take, we only take the people who are so bad off they need the Messiah to be murdered so they could be made presentable to God. That's the only people we take. I mean, even Bill Gates would not be allowed to be a member here unless he could confess that he is so bad off that the Messiah had to be murdered in his behalf. Yes, we would love to have his tithes and offerings, but we would be willing to offend him at membership because he must confess Christ and Christ alone, right? So we only take the sick, but what if we're making people sicker? That, that is a public relations disaster for a hospital, right? And you, you want to find the point of entry, and you want to do it with, uh, without a culture of fear taking over, and you need to be truthful, and you're in danger of losing the confidence of sick people in the community, because they're like, if I go there, I'm going to get sicker, Right? And this is kind of the situation that the apostles and Apostle Paul had to manage that he saw it was going on in Galatia. And, and what I want you to see is he saw it and he, he brought correction not by saying, you've embraced a lot of really bad teaching, though there were some roots there. And his prescription for remedy wasn't just start behaving differently. But in verse 14, he says the source of it was, that, was what he could detect culturally do you know that churches have a culture of course you do <laughs> you are always you are often evaluating that and um, there is a culture that is different than the doctrine or the teaching of a church now I'm a big proponent of how important doctrine is I spent a long time you know learning Greek words and reading thick systematic theologies and all that stuff because I believe it's really important what we proclaim. But have you ever been in, um, have you ever noticed a restaurant that the food is good, but you don't want to go anymore because the plates are dirty, the silverware is dirty, uh, the servants are surly, um, the atmosphere is bad, and you're like, the food, food good, but atmosphere bad. Um, that's in a sense a kind of cultural thing and the reason I say this is culture is in chapter 2 verse 14 Paul detected the problem by what he saw with his eyes and he said I, I observed that, that Peter a leader was not acting in alignment with the gospel he had not aligned his life with the truth of the gospel and the prescription was not just hey teach a little better or you need better table manners but it was like Paul could see with his eyes that they were no longer in step with the spirit and with the heart uh, and the atmosphere of the gospel. So like one time, um, I, I, was, I remember the place in North Carolina, one of my favorite spots, and I went to this organic food market, and I got there a little bit early, and I, you know, 
you're into organic food, you're like trying to avoid the chemicals and stuff. And the, the person who was operating it, who was evidently hired, was fogging the whole room with raid because they were biting flies. And so it's like an organic market, all this food, and he's fogging the place. That, that's what we can do if we get out of step with the culture of the gospel of grace. And the word Paul uses here, and, and just kind of your... I'm a Greek nerd in part, but I just, I love how it breaks down, and I'm not a professional at all, but it just says, they, it says, Peter was not ortho podiatrine. <laughs> you know, like podiatry is your step and your walk, and ortho is being straight. And he says he was not living a straight life with the gospel. And you know why he was not living a straight walk with the gospel? There was a culture of fear, there was a culture of people pleasing, there, there was a culture of not blowing the whistle. That, that was, and, and, this will intercept us in living that kind of authenticity with our broken lives. And look, we're all in that broken place. If, we, if the church can't be a safe and honest place for that, then we have, we have intercepted the power of the gospel, and we, it's a cultural issue. We can be talking the truth of the gospel. So gospel truth uh, and, and the, the doctrine of, cultural, uh, of gospel truth uh, is... God's grace to the unworthy and the undeserving. I like the way um, John Stott put it. He said this, he said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God looks on that, and God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be on a bloody cross. That's, that's the gospel for undeserving sinners. It is good news. It is not based on anything we've, we've underdone. But there are plenty of churches, there's not enough churches that proclaim that, and I would dare say most of the churches in Chester County don't proclaim that. Not clear. But then the other question is, for the churches that proclaim it, is this the controlling factor in our culture? Or... Is there a culture of fear and people-pleasing and suppressing the need for feedback and critique and alignment? And here's what I'd say. If it could happen in Galatia, <laughs> it, it can happen anywhere, that, that culture of, of that kind of fear. Fear that needs to please others. It was Jesus' big critique of the Pharisees. He said that you're seeking to please and get the, product, the plaudits and applause of other people. And it is so seductive to us. Uh, and it is, it creates, and it makes church a place where it's easy to hide and where it's hard, actually, to bring critique. And Paul saw that while they may have been enunciated in many ways the right doctrine, that in their practice, they basically were saying, yeah, but what really counts, and there was a kind of, a, there was a spiritual pecking order that if you followed the rituals that Christ died on the cross to satisfy and to complete and make no longer part of our walk. If you, if, if you had those things somehow, you were special status. And Peter got carried along in this. Paul calls it hypocrisy. Um, he calls it in the end of Galatians, I think in verses 19, he says, I do not set aside, I do not nullify the gospel. <laughs> And if you had told Peter, like, are you nullifying the gospel? He said, no, I'm not, I'm not nullifying the gospel. I'm just, trying to, I'm just cozying up to the Jews. I'm just, I'm just choosing, 
you know, dinner partners who have the ritualistic uh, hygienic rules. I'm, I'm just doing that. And he's like, no, you are nullifying the grace of God by your behavior. And the root of this was a culture of fear that silenced the whole church. What was really interesting, what's interesting to me is how the whole of a, of a, a group and a system or a body becomes complicit uh, when no one speaks up and when those are not amplified. And a culture of fear produces that. Culture of fear silences um, prophetic voices. And it silences in particular the very solution. So again, imagine this hospital-acquired infection it's there, but it's been, it's, it's hushed. It's not dealt with. It's not, you know, when that happens, there has to be a leaning into the most awkward public relations statement that a hospital ever makes, and that is that we are actually, we have entered a phase where somewhere, somehow, we're making people sick, and we are going to get on top of it. We're going to restore your confidence. We're going to tell you where and why and how. Not, we're not trying to hunt people down. We're just trying to correct where that's gone wrong, Right? Uh, and, and so this is Paul's great moment. And you, you got to look at Paul as kind of a junior apostle here in many ways. <laughs> you know, it, it's not yet established that he's going to write his upteen letters to the churches and all. He, he called himself one who was born untimely to be an apostle. And here's Peter, the inner three, uh, the one who had the, these incredible leadership gifts, the one who brought the sermon on Pentecost that brought in thousands. And, and and Paul has the wherewithal uh, to stand up. You talk about somebody who was walking on landmines. <laughs> but you see, when you've got the gospel uh, uh, agenda, you basically are, are bringing the one thing that can diffuse all the landmines. And so a, a cultural fear is something so important for the gospel to correct in the church. A church that's functioning in the gospel means that there is absolutely no reason for anybody in our community who, who simply wants to come into this and be themselves to fear anything. Uh, they don't have to pretend to believe what we believe. They don't have to pretend to live the way we're living. Um, if you're uh, in Christ and you love him, but you are not sure of a number of things or you're wrestling with things, you don't have to pretend uh, because we are a place that is so confident in the one who is truth incarnate, uh, and we are so confident and secure in him, we don't have the place uh, to get all crossed up in fear. Uh, and yet churches often are very touchy places. Um, they're places where it's, they can be difficult to have the conversation. <laughs> you know, and so uh, you know how it happens, the, you know, difficult feedback or feedback of, about realism. There's sacred cows that have established programs or endowments or sacred pieces of real estate or furniture or programming that are no longer really effective, but nobody can say anything, right? Uh, you know, Bertha has played that pipe organ and it squawks and screams and nobody really enjoys it, but, but who's going to talk to her? Nobody. Because she's a relative of so-and-so who gave this and that inscription's on the stained glass window, right? And we, we can laugh about that one, but the reality is I can become very inapproachable. You, you attack my sacred cow, ask questions. I, I need the grace of other people to say, let's, you know, we need to have a conversation that is not a threat, but is simply seeking to, 
to make us the best version of ourselves. And so when a church is functioning according to the gospel, there is no turf, there are no silos, there are no changes that we're not willing to talk about and consider unless they violate the book that we've all pledged ourselves to and the gospel uh, that we've all given ourselves to. There is a kind of open honesty and agenda that makes the church the most exciting place. And, and be very clear, a church that's rooted in grace is not a church that will just fall for anything and stand for nothing culture. It's a church that will stand up, but often what the church has to stand up for is to make sure there, is, there has been no parasite attach itself, no barnacle attach itself to the, to the ship that proclaims Jesus Christ and him alone. Really, church history, in many ways, reached an apex of the Reformation, when I think what God did, in many ways, was he hauled the ship into dry dock, and he hoisted it up, and he allowed the scraping off of all these encrusted barnacles, some of the barnacles that got so big they were threatening to sink the boat, so that the ship could be set a sail in a freer, invigorated, awakened, and beautiful way. And so, let's just declare and seek the Lord and say one thing. We, we want a no-eggshells culture in our church. I've, I've sat with married couples. I'm not a marriage counselor, so and you don't want to come see me for marriage counseling, go see a professional. But I will support you and help you find the love of Christ in a, in a situation like that. But always the sign of an unhealthy marriage is when, like, everything's an eggshell-type thing. You're just you're walking on eggshells. And... An unhealthy church is a place where you can't have the conversation. You can't raise the topic. You can't um, be honest. But that doesn't mean the church stands for nothing. It just means the church stands for the proposition. We are works in process. And one of the issues churches often have trouble dealing with is the place that we are always going to be at times causing help to the very, in the very means that we are bringing healing. The only kind of servants that the Lord actually has commissioned are flawed servants. And so there is, there is always that place. And sometimes that's a place when it's not met in a gospel of grace, uh, when it sh with short accounts, to bring down cultures of fear and defensiveness, then that hurt can get solidified. And what we find in Paul is this incredible willingness to stop everything and, and what did he do? He publicly confronted the issue. This is one of the narratives that Tove brings out. It says actually many times the Bible is used in a way that subverts what Scripture says, and that is that when there is an issue affecting the public um, leadership of the church or public domain of, of the church's ministry, it is to be dealt with publicly. All the other rules that we thought we knew about what's gossip and what's not gossip— they, they shift when it pertains to the leaders. And I'm proclaiming that because I'm the one who's most affected by that. I don't get the protection of personal gossip. Um, I don't get some of the protections that the Bible says. Why is that? <laughs> because there, we're going to look more at this next week, but because when there is a power relationship, if you go to the person who's supposed to solve the problem, again, if you go to the doctor who is the source of the hospital-acquired infection and he realizes he's messed up, he may not take the measures that need to be taken at that time because he is all embroiled in the whole processes that are bringing the infection. You've got to go someplace else. 
Uh, that's for everybody's well-being. And, and so that's why there are verses in the Bible in 1 Timothy 5 where it says if a leader sins, they're to be rebuked publicly. Why? Because we draw and quarter our leaders and hate them? No. Because we are carrying such a precious cargo that that is the way redemption works. Uh, and, and so a fear culture, again, causes us to get fearful about, about all those things. And then whistleblowers are silenced. And guess what? I don't think there are very many of us, not me, probably very few of you who love to like blow whistles in the midst of <laughs> quiet moments. But that is a role that we're supposed to do and we're supposed to do before you need the shrill. And I thought about bringing a whistle with me today <laughs> and just like <laughs> shocking you all. But if, if we do it constantly, then you don't have to amplify it to that point. And so... One of the areas that we want to amplify, again, whistleblowing, is even in, even in a look backward. And there's, there's really probably three areas um, that we've looked at and talked about at CLC in terms of the past. One is COVID was not an easy time. Managing COVID ministerially was not an easy time. And in the midst of that, it was so easy to allow partisan perspectives on what the right way was to deal with it, that it was so, it was easy, it was a perfect brew to get sideways from each other. I, I don't know of a pastor or church that said COVID was a great time of harvest and unity and sweetness. It, sh I, I, when we went into it at first in 2020, and I was pastoring in Doralstown, I thought like, this is an easy layup. Because we know as a church, we should all be thinking about what will serve you. And so somebody can say, hey, I'm immunocompromised. I need this and this. This is what will serve me. And then somebody else can say, okay, well, um, that's not going to work as well for me. So I need this, but I'm concerned about what you need. I'm concerned about what you need. And so what we wind up doing is diverse things that are incredibly tilted toward mercy. And we show the rest of the culture how we, but that wasn't the narrative hardly anywhere. <laughs> and that was a miss. Secondly, in the midst of that was the attachment of what was going on in the culture in our extremely polarized partisan situation um, that is creating wedges between people and has adopted the discourse of secular politicians and secular media chains for how we talk about political convictions and how much hold they have on our heart in the church. Now, if you've been blissfully unaware of all that, you, that's great. <laughs> And because you're here, it may be like these things were not huge issues for you, but they become secondary issues because you know someone who, I mean, I know so many people who can't have family gatherings the same way they did before all this stuff. Crazy. And it's added hurt to hurt that people who were brothers and sisters in Christ and walked together, walked away from each other, <laughs> for these kinds of transitory things, and we are so being played. A pastor I, I know said they noticed that their um, Twitter feeds were being liked, and then they were being, uh, they attached to their Twitter feed additional arguments. Um, and uh, this pastor is kind of on the left wing, and she puts out a lot of more left wing, I think somewhat partisan type things, uh, and she was really appreciating all the likes and all the articles, but she found when she read the articles, the articles were vilifying 
the other political perspective inside and getting her so worked up. And then she did some research on who was doing all of this because she's like, wow, my Twitter feed is on fire. And she found out that a whole bunch of them were Russian bots who were um, basically entering her uh, Twitter feeds to promote polarization. And she wrote a repentant column. I thought it was very repentant when she said, our nation's polarization is a a national security issue. (laughs) We're being played. Outside foreign forces know that if they can get us to hate each other, um, that they can bring disruption to us as an entire nation. And, and so we need to blow the whistle on that and to keep the short accounts around that. And then the third piece of it in the midst of those two things going on was a kind of leadership crisis that required uh, the resources of our denominational team and even then would have required their absolute best experts and Look, I think everybody on the elder team and the staff would have said, look, in hindsight, it looks like that should have happened like immediately, sooner, faster. When you need help, the sooner you ask for help, right, um, is the better. And so there are some lessons learned and some, some things that humble us toward the future that simply say part of the progress is you recognize when we need help, we're going to ask for help. That's part of the wisdom. We're gonna create a safe space. If someone has a concern, we're gonna seek that concern out early, early, early. We're gonna be even more emphatic than the airport. When you're walking around with your luggage, right, you hear this thing saying, if you see something, say something, right? If you see something, say something. Why are they saying that? They're saying that we're gonna be this culture that promotes safety by making it unsafe for someone who, you know, hands you a package and says, here, carry this to London for us. So, you know, it's ticking or it's like whatever, right? And, and so we want to be that culture where, and that means there is some cost to leaders and to all of us to say like, that is where we want to be. And let me say there's virtually been no church that has been that perfectly. That is who we want to be. That is not who we have been. I think I can say that without having been there. That's not who we have been, but it is who in Jesus we are becoming and all of the worst things that the devil could throw from us. And I think as he looks at CLC, he must be really frustrated because all the worst things that he could throw at us are only making us more vigilant and saying, we do not want to live that narrative anymore. And so we're, we're, we're taking a look at that narrative. But I would be remiss if I didn't say, but in the midst of one one reason we do that and why we do that is we need to make sure we also pursue anybody who was wounded in that time. Anybody who was wounded in that time. In, In that time where there needed to be more gracious dissidents stand up in the midst of that. Because the individuals being wounded, they are, and often it, what happens in the narrative, we get concerned about the programs and the institution. But one thing I've always seen is Jesus never said, love your institution. He didn't even say, love your church. He said, love your neighbor, love the sheep, love the vulnerable, and put that boundary line first. And there are people who are wounded because in the midst of it, they didn't have confidence that we really We're going to amplify any whistleblower and bring that concern to the place it could be dealt with and healed completely and managed. And so in the midst of that, there was a loss of confidence and a wounded and a secondary kind of wounding. 
And we need to be so vigilant about this. We can sometimes be so insider, we're caring for our own program and we're not amplifying those voices. And those voices, those souls are precious. <laughs> Christ didn't die for an institution or conglomerate. He, he died for each individual sheep. And I would just say this, if you know of somebody who was wounded and, and left with a wound, I believe there is an imperative of the Spirit of God on your heart to somehow reach out and address that in love. I don't know exactly what that means. It may be that you lob that name to me or to, or to someone who can follow up. Because here's what I know, and Diane Langberg addresses this so, so well, that sometimes the people who are wounded and leave are the most courageous people. Now, that's a really risky thing for me to say because I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> and it takes courage to stay, too. But sometimes the wounded person is the person who is detecting something's off. You know, they're, they're saying, we got some bed bugs in our hotel in room 606. We gotta deal with it. Like they, they raise that and then like they, they're not taking the actions. Well, I'm out. I'm not gonna work. I'm not gonna be the front person for a hotel with bed bugs. <laughs> you know, I'm not working in a barbershop that, where there's, I saw some lice. And, and so they don't, and so I will just say the narrative of those people with they are, they are more sensitive the way a china cup is more sensitive if you throw it against a wall than a styrofoam cup, right? We need the narrative of, of people who've been wounded. We need it. We, we need it to be that culture. We need, this is what Diane Langberg says, uh, of this, she says, we need the stories of those who've recovered from all kinds of spiritual abuse. We need the voices of those who have been silenced in the past. We need the leadership of those who have recovered from church bullying. We, we need those people who have experienced racial discrimination or misogyny or uh, recovered from some kind of deep hurt. We need those voices in the church because they will help us be who Jesus wants us to be. And that is a community that the grace of God. And we need to go after them. Not to get them back necessarily, although surely Jesus would want them to know they are welcome here. Not even to let them know that we're going to write a different narrative, a narrative where they will be safe and prioritized and we are going to say there is a safe place of reporting any concern and you will not be vulnerable to anybody you know. You can just make this known in a place that will take action. We are going to do that. We're going to do exit interviews when someone leaves to see what we can learn. Um, be foolish not to. And, and, and we're going to seek and, and, and make that known because we, we want to be Christ's instrument in this way. And, and we want to be that culture that, that moves in the way that Christ would have us move so that we are not just asking God, grow us, add to us, strengthen our resources, but we're saying, yeah, but God, first make us to be like Jesus. Again, Langberg says it this way so well. I would encourage you to listen to some of the podcast and the YouTube videos she's on because I really believe until we listen to her really well, we are not safe for a lot of people. I just really believe that. She is bringing out some distinctive helps to us. She says this, the, the solution is that we learn to know Christ so well that we can discern what is unlike him, 
no matter the seductive or religious garb it wears, because God is building his kingdom in the hearts of men and women, not in externals that we've come to protect and praise. And I want to say, I think one of the, one of the signposts of this is, and I, I hope we see more and more of it, is people who just say, yeah, I'm coming, but I don't yet buy anything. I'm not yet a believer. I, I wish in a way that we could have a... Um, I'm all for transparency in all our meetings and what goes on. I think a good staff meeting is a meeting that my furthest away from Jesus' friend would say, I don't believe what you believe, but wow. I love how you're treating each other. I love what I'm picking up as the vibe, right? I, I really think it, it'd almost be worth hiring rank unbelievers who don't believe anything we believe to sit in every single meeting that we have and give us a review. Because what I found is unbelievers are great baloney detectors. Even better if they're unbelieving teenagers. They're really good baloney detectors. And, and they will reveal the, the heart and substance and help us stay true to it. Something that I think, I will just tell you, in my first six months, I think that it is very strong here especially coming through all the things that you've come through. I think you are a beautiful people. I think there is a beautiful big narrative that God is writing. But I also think that's why it's worth saying we're going to, we're not going to cover up things that God may want to teach us from the past. We're going to be in ongoing dialogue with it in confidence with our God because we know this is what he does. And when we do that, we will just naturally reflectively live out by, by, by the fact that this is the overflow where we are, we will just live out a beautiful story. I, I'm gonna close with a beautiful story about Queen Elizabeth. Um, this comes from Robert Cunningham. He's the pastor of Tate's uh, Creek Presbyterian Church, and I think he was over in London um, doing a, a PhD of some kind, and, and he said he was taking a tour of the UK Parliament building and he asked the tour guide, I'm gonna ask this question from now, and he says, what's the most crazy story you can ever tell us that happened here? Because this tour guide was, had been there for decades. And he said, oh, I know what I'll tell you. He said, every legislative session begins with a visit from the queen. It's a very regal tradition. She wears her crown and robe. She processes down a hallway lined with the queen's guards, and they strike the, the spurs of their heels against the stone walls uh, to make sparks as she flies by. It's like a big moment. And the hallway ends at the House of Lords where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. And they were forced to break the tradition a few years ago to accommodate the queen in her older age. Um, she couldn't do the staircase, so they just started to use the elevator. And so you have Queen Elizabeth in the elevator, uh, and this was the first year they've ever done it this way, but the, the lift operator made a mistake and he pushed the wrong button for the wrong floor. And rather than the entrance to parliament, he presses the buttons for the maintenance floor. <laughs> and the lift goes down, the doors open, and Alice from the cleaning crew is just kind of distracted and she's there with her big hamper of trash. And without even looking up to see who was in the elevator, she wheels the hamper full of trash and disposables <laughs> and she pins the queen virtually against the wall. 
before anybody could see what's happening. And, and so they're like, oh, you know, the lift operator's like, well, what's going on? And then Alice lets out an expletive, which is really not fit, I can't repeat it, in, in the presence of the queen, and everybody's just like caught up in this moment of awkwardness, right? Until the queen pierces it by just uproarious laughter. She just, she just laughs out the awkwardness. Laughter is often a sign of grace. And the silence was broken by her uncontrollable laughter. But then the queen did more. Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, the queen says, no, I want us to go up to the proper floor. And the doors open, and to everyone's shock, out walks Her Majesty the Queen and Alice, the maintenance worker, <laughs> in her maintenance uniform. They process down the hallway but it even gets better. Once a year, for the rest of Alice, the maintenance worker's life, the queen invites her to Buckingham Palace for high tea in a one-on-one -on -one with Queen Elizabeth. And this continued again and again and again. Now that is a beautiful story. And if you don't know, the queen met for Bible study with serious Christian Bible leaders and sought to live her life in accordance with that. But that is but a dim picture of what our narrative in the church of Jesus Christ is. It's why as flawed sinners, and we're all at times gonna be the threat of that hospital-acquired infection being ministered. It's why we need each other as a team. It's why we've got to have that culture of short accounts. It's got to be, we've had that culture of you see something, say something. And you know why we can do that fearlessly? We can do that because we have a crucified Messiah who really did jump on the landmine of the cross that exploded uh, and who took that upon himself so that we could be his representatives. And when that narrative is lived out, this is what Paul was all about. He says, I will confront Peter to his face. I will have the messiness of this momentary situation so that the narrative of the grace of God and the grace of God alone will not be discredited or lost. Oh, church, this is so worth it. And anything else is not worth doing church for. And that's why culture matters. Teaching matters, yes. What we do matters, yes. But the whole culture in which we do it in, that will tell the story of whether God has our hearts. Paul says, you are an aroma of life. When we live this way, we are an aroma of life to those being saved. May God open the floodgates for us in that way. Let us pray. Father, we pray you would truly lay down this good news in a way that is so deep it unearths and moves everything else to the sidelines. We pray, O oh Lord, and we pray that you would make us whistleblowers. We thank you for whistleblowers. We pray for those who have been wounded, even to be sidelined, and we thank you for even the heroism that sometimes prompts someone in that situation to take steps away, away from the community of faith so that they can retain their cling upon Jesus. We pray for our responsibility for them. We pray for these discussions among our leaders. May it continue. It's not one or two and done, but because we so desperately need you, may it be the constant posture that we take. 
And Lord, we do this because you have all authority in heaven and earth, but we want it to be easy for you to say that you have the steering wheel of CLC. And you have the sway. And there are no closed off rooms. But Lord, we are seeking to open ourselves to let the full ray and the full shafts of your light come in, Lord, and thank you that because of the gospel, we can be honest because we can't hide anything from you, but we can be honest because it's there that you heal us. It's there that you provide hope. It's there that you fuel a new narrative. And so, Lord, give us, each of us in our different experiences and backgrounds, the courage to do whatever you, Lord Jesus, ask us to do. And make us like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Desires and dreams.
Yes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> what a great prayer for us to close with. I want to pronounce a benediction on you. I want to remind you there's snow cones. Be sure and pick those up. I always told pick your kids up too, though. Don't just enjoy the snow cones without them. Then after about 10 minutes, um, I'll just collect up here. Uh, whoever might want to stay, especially if you're a visitor or you just have a question even about CLC or anything in the sermon, we'll do that for about... 35 minutes or so after that. So uh, lift up your hearts and receive this benediction. Now may the God of peace sanctify you, make you like Jesus through and through, body, soul, and spirit. May he do this. Faithful is the one who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Amen. Amen. If my